This is Shelf Marks and I'm Zoe Cummins, podcaster in residence at the Royal Irish Academy. This week, counting steps across Ireland, stopping, watching and listening to the landscape around us. I'm going to explore some of the life and spirit of naturalist Robert Lloyd Prager, and I take a walk with the poet Jane Clark and find out about her relationship with Roscommon, Wicklow, where she lives now, and the Mourne Mountains in County Down. How do you measure something impossible to measure? How do you count knowledge or experience? Robert Lloyd Prager wrote and contributed to more than 800 papers on natural history. To sum him up, I'll write one word for each of his publications. I've already used 60 of my 800. Yes, including this one. For every single one of these words, Prager gave us a paper, a study, a survey, many pioneering, some running to hundreds of pages. We'll start counting Prager's experience way back in childhood. With his brother, he tramped all over the Mourne Mountains. His scientific uncles brought the shy boy on formative field trips. Already, I'm at 121 words, the number of publications Prager had written by 1901. He's 36 and has 50 years of writing still to go. 50 years of writing about field botany, flowers, fossils, rocks and clays and bogs, formations and fauna. You can count his ways of seeing Ireland, not as 32 counties, but partitioned by botanics. 40 areas, each containing such specific plant life to be worthy of their own boundaries. Over five years, he himself did 212 hour days of fieldwork. The results became one of his most important works, Irish topographical botany. Later, he organised 100 scientists to comb Clare Island and record it as a biogeographical survey that's now recognised as a masterpiece of natural history. During the week, 30 or more years of during the week, he worked in the National Library of Ireland as assistant librarian and eventually chief librarian. He oversaw the rebinding of thousands of manuscripts. Indoors, he did what he was good at. He organised and catalogued for future generations, for you and me. At home, in the weekday evenings with his beloved wife Hedwig, he would tend the 2,000 plants in his Rathgar garden, each one a minor study. To become a naturalist takes time. Count the hours spent at desks, reading, comparing, calculating. The hours spent drawing or writing or cataloguing, inspecting and preserving. Count the hours spent wishing that you could be out in the countryside exploring. And when you do go, count the journeys taken. Always on foot. Prager was a walker. You can count the 5,000 miles he walked around Ireland on field trips. You could set off from anywhere in Ireland to Moscow and back and still not reach 5,000 miles. But also, we must count the space he gave others during the 33 years as editor of the essential journal The Irish Naturalist and the decades in the Royal Irish Academy on committees as its librarian and later its president. I am now at almost 500 words. Prager will still work on nearly 300 more papers, one paper for each of my words. But in all his papers, very few words are given to what propels or guides him. They tell us where he went and what he saw. 
but he didn't insert himself into the narrative. The plants and places tell the story. People have said he was terse, blunt, abrupt. Prager himself confessed to blustering. He was famously dismissive when it came to certain landscapes of Ireland. In his best-known book, The Way That I Went, there's a short phrase that is perhaps the spirit that guides his walks. Stopping, Stopping often, often, watching, watching closely, closely, listening carefully. Remember those 5,000 miles? Each step taken with purpose. Stopping often, watching closely, listening carefully. Stopping to notice the striations of a glacier dragged over a rock in Connemara. Watching the sky that means mischief as it moves across the granite crags that crown the morns. Listening to the southwesterly gale that howls in from the Irish Sea. In addition to his 800 papers, his walks across bogs and fields and islands and uplands, the thousands of plants and landscapes surveyed. Just to top it off, he wrote 24 books. And I too can squeeze in a few extra words for each book. Each book propelled by curiosity, the contours of a small thing. The tongue-shaped shining leaves of the butterwort. Or his deep experiences of entire areas. The Atlantic fringe with its tall brown hills, its tattered coastline and snowy foam. Towards the end of his life, he could only stop. He couldn't walk well, who could after that many miles. There was a stumble in his gait. The present time is one of rush and clatter, of fuss and noise and glare. Hurry and noise are the keynotes of today. That noise too would disappear as his hearing went in later life. He leaves an unequalled knowledge of Ireland, all guided by the mantra-like watchwords. Stopping often, watching closely, listening carefully. My 824 words represent Prager's 800 papers and 24 books, but I'll cheat and treat you to more of Prager's own. The long summer days spent in the limestone plain where the gentle undulations of the ground only occasionally hid the distant rim of brown and blue hills. The marshy meadows heavy with the scent of flowers. The great brown bogs where the curlews alone relieved the loneliness. The bare limestone pavements and gaunt grey hills of Clare and Galway. The savage cliffs of the Mayo coast. The flower-filled sand dunes which fringe the Irish Sea. The fertile undulations of southern Ulster. The swift brown current of the Barrow. The fretted limestone shores of the great western lakes. The towering cones of the Galtees. All have left memories that can never be effaced. Ireland is a delightful country for the pursuit of work in the field. Enclosed or preserved ground is but seldom met with, and the country is free and open. Few rivers but can be forded. Few marshes or bogs but can be crossed. Few precipices but yield their treasures to the mountaineer. Few spots are so remote, but they may be visited in a good day's walking from the nearest stopping place. The words of Robert Lloyd Prager there. My guest now on Shelf Marks is poet Jane Clark. 
Jane grew up in County Roscommon and came to writing after a career in psychotherapy. She moved to Wicklow almost 25 years ago. I caught up with her there and took a walk up a lane known as Fairy Lane and to hear two specially commissioned poems about her neighbour and quarrymen. I remember one evening, our neighbours across the road were having a, a chat and a drink one evening and I remember saying, part of the reason for coming here was I'd love to write. But it, it was funny because I said it and then I thought, oh, that's true. I still, it was a long time before I saw myself as a writer and it was, rather than urgency, it was there was an excitement that led me. It really was like falling in love. That's what it was like. That's the nearest thing that I could, where, you know, when you fall in love, you just want to follow that. There's no question. And whether it makes sense or not in your life, you're going to follow it. And that's what it was like with the writing. So I was as surprised as anybody else. So that's Balnacor, that rounded hill there in front of us. And then beside it is Croken Moira. And that comes down through Fanon which is just above Glemelour Lodge, which lots of people know. It's a great place for hill walkers to have a drink after a walk. And then that is part of the Glemelour Valley. So, you know, we can see Mullacore over there and then we can see Lugnaquilla in the distance. And when we're going to walk up the lane now, we'll see those peaks better. So you, you arrive here in Wicklow, yeah. but your first words are not about Wicklow, they're about Roscommon, which is where you're from. The poetry you write, I think, continues to be a mystery, always is. It's not primarily a, a conscious decision, it's what uh, moves you. It's something, for me, it's something to do with emotion and memory those, and imagination. Them all getting very, they work together. Emotion, memory and imagination. And what, uh, what are the native flowers? Well, native would be self-heal, sheep sorrel. There's, you can see I have some thistles, which of course my father turned his grave at me, letting there be thistles in the garden. But of course, thistles, I think, are very magnificent plants. And I love the purple. And, and of course, the bees love the purple as well. And then there's eyebright in the lawn, which is just amazing. You know, it's this tiny little flower that was good for eyesight. And then there's the dockweed. And have to watch that. Okay, so this poem, Flowers from the Hills, I wrote uh, during lockdown. And it was the first lockdown when we weren't able to travel at all. It was very, the travel restrictions were very severe. And uh, my mother was in Roscommon and I was here across the country in Wicklow. And we were walking around here. And so I was very aware of all the beautiful um, wildflowers that were out. As Like everybody else, there was that even greater awareness of nature. So I had sort of had this wish that I could send her those flowers. Flowers from the hills. Because I can't travel the miles between us, I'll send you flowers from the hills. Ladies' bed straw to brighten your bedroom. Placed by your pillow, it'll scent your sleep. Scarlet pimpernel to dispel your sadness. It wakes early as the blackbird sings. Cranesbill, Herb Robert, Ragged Robin, come pink as dawn to your window. Eyebright will heal your tired sight, two-lipped petals, lilac-lined. 
teasel to feed goldfinch in your garden. Orange tips will drink from the leaves. Marsh marigold to ward off all harm. Stitchworth sprinkled like stars at your feet. Your first two collections, The River and When the Tree Falls, and the work that you're doing now, they all feature outdoors, geographical features, and very importantly, human activity within that. You know, when you say that, the outdoors with humans in it, what comes to mind is growing up on a farm, because that's what it is. It's about the outdoors with the humans in it. The outdoors, the indoors, the back and forth, the in and out into the elements, back in wet and cold and getting dried and washing the clothes and going out. That's in a way what farming is all about. So maybe it's no wonder that that early experience of the outdoors, no wonder then that keeps being of interest to me. Isn't it that it's, it's how people interact with the outdoors, but also with animals, with insects, with birds, with flowers. And it's about what all those things around us mean to us, how we, how we make meaning in life through what we see and experience around us. And also something about beauty, I think, uh, is always of interest to me. I'd like to talk a little bit about the difference because, uh, between Roscommon and here. So Roscommon, tell me about the landscape of Roscommon versus the landscape of where we are in Wycliffe. I think they're very different. And, but the first thing I'd say is limestone and granite. So it's, it's about what you actually walk on. It's what, what you dig into. It's, you know, it's geological difference. And limestone is this very porous, you know, rock. And it's good land, very good land in Roscommon. Um, but because of the porous nature, of course, there's the turlocks, there's the callows. I think of Roscommon a lot about rivers and lakes and streams and bog and callows and wetland. So that's what, when I think of Roscommon, that's what I think of. And good land. And then when I think of Wicklow, I think of mountains and I think of trees. I think of kind of a magnificent kind of scenery. The Avonbeg River that runs the length of the Glenmalure Valley coming off Table Mountain and it goes the whole way along the valley to the meetings of the water, which was made famous by Thomas Moore. And there the Avonmore River and the Avonbeg River meet and become the Avoca River, which then uh, leads out into the sea at Arklow. But the Avonmore River, which is another really beautiful river in Wicklow, it comes the whole way from above Loch Tay, uh, near the Sally Gap where it rises, and comes down via uh, Glen Macnass, and, and it gathers more rivers along the way and flows down here to meet the Avonbeg. When I was reading The Way That I Went, interestingly, when Prager was writing about this area, he drew attention to the sort of gold rush of the 1800s and, and mining for gold. Um, and just this morning, 
I thought I'd look up Roscommon and see what he said about it. So would I read to you yeah, a little do, bit? please. <laughs> I hadn't read this section actually before. Right. So it says, Opposite to Westmeath and Longford, the county of Roscommon forms the west bank of the Shannon for over 70 miles, a full third of the total length of that large river. Save for that long riverfront extending from Loch Allen and Loch Key through Loch Bowderg and the adjoining watery country, Loch Ree, and onto Shannon Bridge, Roscommon is decidedly dull. <laughs> right. Well, you see, I couldn't agree with that. And now I'm going to be a bit like Seamus Heaney defensive about my county because remember, he didn't like what he said about Tyrone. And, you know, I, I couldn't agree with that. But I suppose, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I'm struck that that's what he made of it. And maybe that's how I would have felt about it growing up. And that's how we felt about it growing up. Yeah, it, it felt like it was dull and it nothing felt, there. Absolutely. And that was why... You know, poetry was one of the things that helped me see what was there. And, you know, that's why reading people like Kavanagh and Heaney are important because they they help you look at your own place differently. And, you know, the wonders of the bog, we know now that bogs are absolutely teeming with wildlife and so important, you know, for biodiversity. We know the importance of rivers. We know the wetlands. I mean, Callows are now precious places for birds. So I, I couldn't agree with it. It's really interesting, isn't it? And that he but maybe because he was a botanist, what was he looking at? Perhaps, you know, the great thing about biodiversity now, the recognition that everything is interdependent. But maybe he didn't have quite that sense of things then. I'm not sure about that. And our view of the countryside has changed, hasn't it, over yeah. the last hundred years? And it's amazing to see that even somebody like Prager, who had definitely an appreciation for the flora, the fauna, th there was a cul-de-sac there in his imagination yes. somehow. Yes, there was. Yeah. And it is interesting that growing up in the 60s in the west of Ireland, in the Midlands, that's how we felt about it too. I mean, I don't know if you remember the expression bogman. That was the greatest insult. That's what everybody called each other in school when they were insulting each other. You're a bogman. All of us, we grew up beside bogs. But that was seen as backward, as ignorant. And to get to Dublin was the achievement. That isn't how we see our countryside now, which is great that that has changed. Reading someone like Prager and other naturalists, what can we learn from them then if their views are maybe outdated and they're not looking at things as we're looking at them now? What do we owe to them and what can we learn from them? Well, I think what we owe to him is, I think he was just such a wonderful model of an observer of you know, the botanical life of the country. Like, there is no doubt about it that he gathered information about our plants that is invaluable to us. There's just no question about that. And that he started these questions that people are still asking questions like, why have we those plants in Clare? Why are those plants in the Burren? You know, how he saw Ireland, there were restrictions in his vision of Ireland and his understanding of Ireland. But at the same time, he was way, way, way ahead in his learning and, and his, his what he gathered, the knowledge he gathered about the botanical life of Ireland. I mean, the idea of walking every weekend, uh, you know, to learn about what plants were there. I mean, it's just, it, it is wonderful. It's really inspiring.
Where are you going to take me? We'll go up the road here. And uh, there's a little lane. And you can hear the wind in the birch as we pass by. And so ash trees along here, ash and holly and oak. There is so much ash, holly and oak in Wicklow. And also hazel and alder. And the sun's coming out. Sorry, beautifully actually. And the wind is dying down a little bit, I think, even as we walk along. Or maybe it's just more sheltered here. It just feels like it's opened up for us <laughs> yes, <does>. right now. <laughs> it does. So this is this lane that we're going, which really you can see it's more like a cart track. So it would have been, you know, for farmers and going from one fair to another, probably, and for, you know, transporting animals. But yeah, so it, it's called the, the fairy lane, but also, you know, as you w go further, it becomes the lousy lane. And we have been told, you know, a local man told us that that was because at the time of the famine, people would be just lying up against the ditches, homeless, you know, starving. And also they'd have um, lice. And that was how it got known as the lousy lane. And I suppose people were lying against a, a road like this, hoping maybe to get a lift somewhere or to get some food from people who were going from one part of the county to another. And it's amazing that one track that you can these days just speed by holds yeah. so much history in it. Yeah, that's right, actually. And then the fields on either side hold history. Since we came to live here about 24 years ago, we've been walking through these fields to get up to Ballandary Wood and from there on up to Kirikee Mountain. So we've walked through our neighbours' fields and uh, our neighbour is a shepherd. We knew him, we'd talked to him, we'd stopped to chat and he was always very welcoming to us and made it clear that it was fine for us to walk through his fields and we really appreciated that. But also we got to know him in terms of seeing his work and seeing how he was with the sheep. So he died last January in his mid-80s and I found myself wanting to write a poem about him and wanting to some way record the life of uh, this shepherd here in in these fields. So you can see the fields um, have been cleared of rocks and gorse and of, you know, the bracken and reeds and everything to make them fertile fields. So that's how the poem begins with that, with uh, a stanza about the work that he did to make these, uh, the land into the kind of land he had, he made it into. And it is really fertile looking, isn't it? And yes. the roan bushes, all the roan trees all the way around the edge. Yeah, yeah. The roan and the gorse are kind of the, the shelter, they're the shelter belt here, you know, but that they would have been right through the field. The gorse would have been right through the field. So he would have cleared all of that by hand. Some job, some job, years of work. And you can see there's a rock uh, there still in the middle of that field, you know, an enormous rock. And that's where you'd see lambs up on the top of that um, jumping and playing around because they love a height. Like lambs play, it's, I just, lambs are like children, they need to play and you can see that in the play they're uh, learning the, the skills of relating to each other just like children, you know. So you'd often see them on the top of that uh, kind of um, rock there, that big rock in the field. 
proud that there's one left for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You couldn't remove that. It's enormous. It's the size of a house. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> when he was a boy, these upland fields grew more gorse and rushes than grass. He dug up rocks, shifted stones to ditches and laneways, ploughed hummocks into the ground, harrowed furrows, seeded tilt. We'd meet him on our way up Kiriki, crouched to a ewe on her rump. He'd be clearing thorns from sore hooves before trimming. He'd pause to lament harsh weather or laugh at lambs nudging each other from hillocks. Was it last year we first saw him sit for a breath, his collie resting her head on his knee? On a midwinter morning, neighbours line the length of road downhill to the church at Ballinatone. Ewes huddled close in lambing sheds and through the five-bar gate to the yard an easterly wind keen silver. Jane, you've moved from the Midlands, from Roscommon, via Dublin to here, to the Uplands. What sparks your imagination here in the Uplands? I mean, I suppose for me, the big thing is the Uplands. When there, I think it's a very human desire. It's shared by humans, I think, all over the world to want to get to the top of the mountain. You see a hill and you want to get to the top of it. It's something we just want to do. And I think then when you do, when you trek up or you walk, you know, you it's about perspective. That's how it seems to me, because it's it's wider. You see more. And I think then you you it gives you a bit of space inside as well. It's it's an inner perspective as well as an outer perspective. And then isn't it something that mountains are between the earth and the heavens? You know, they're they're there, they're reaching to the sky and yet they're so rooted. I know that you're an admirer of the Scottish writer Nan Shepherd, whose book The Living Mountain goes into a lot of beautiful detail about the Cairngorm Mountains in the northeast of Scotland. And she says, actually, that the mountain has an inside. The biggest thing that struck me was her saying that it's not about conquering the mountain. I think a lot of us have heard about mountaineering and even hill walking as about achieving or, you know, conquering this, the spirit of a mountain. Whereas she's saying it's going out like meeting a friend. I love that, that you go out to meet the mountain. And also she talks a lot about coming to understand the mountain, coming to know it. She talks about being with the mountain. It's much more almost a kind of a Buddhist sense of relating to this other being as a way of knowing more about yourself and, and others. But, you know, because you were talking about Prager, but like in his very page three of his book, I really like this because it's so like what Nan Shepherd said, because he said only thus if he is fortunate, make friends by degrees with the birds and flowers and rocks, learn all the signs and sounds of the countryside, and at length feel at one with what is after all his natural environment. And you see, writing poetry helped me do that. 
I don't think I was as in touch with with my with my natural environment until I started to write because then I had to find the words and then I got in touch with the the attachment of other people around me um, for their environment and their place. It probably, you know, I feel like I'm a kind of an amateur naturalist now, but I wasn't until I started writing. So you, you live here in Wicklow, Jane, which is a really well-known and appreciated upland area, but you also spend time in another area in County Down, interestingly, a side note, where Prager was born. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yes. uh, and the Mourne Mountains. So you spend a lot of time walking up there. Well, it's just one of, the, one of our favourite places to go. You know, when you're in the midst of the Mourns, they're just all around you and there's so many different walks to do. And... But again, it's a bit like Wicklow in that there are signs of how people have interacted with the landscape there as well. And particularly the, you know, the quarrying and the making of the Mourn Wall. Because that's extraordinary, isn't it? The Mourn Wall, for anyone who's never seen it, I mean, it's worth just going to see itself. It stretches 20 odd miles through mountain after mountain up and down the peaks and the valleys and when you get up close to it it is it because it's so big and so it feels very protective it's a very it's a great sheltered place to stand beside the wall but when you think about all the people who work so hard making that wall and still do mending it restoring it all the time and what was the purpose of the Mourn wall well it was partly to do with the reservoir in the Mourns which provides water for Belfast amongst other places and so the wall was built to protect the reservoir and to stop um, you know, farming and any other, you know, wild animals going down into the reservoir. And again, that's the the idea of wrestling that landscape into something usable, isn't it? But you're interested in the people who actually built the wall. Yeah, well, you know, when we were up there walking, I think it was two years ago at, at New Year. It was New Year's Day. We were walking and we came across this millstone um, sort of half hidden up there on the side of a mountain. Again, it's granite like Wicklow. But then that led me to finding out about the stonemasons. Stonemasons used to come from Annalong, that little village on the coast. They'd come from Annalong up into the quarry on Sea Finn, for example, like there are quarries in other mountains, but on Sea Finn uh, during the summer. And they just lived there for, you know, a month or two during the summer to work in the quarries. And what they made, what the stonemasons made in terms of piers and streets and sidewalks went all over America, all over England, Belfast, Dublin, and it went from that little harbour in Annalong and was carried from, you know, from those mountains of the Mourns down and then out around the world. I just think that's kind of amazing. Summer on Seafin. Stonemasons balanced eggs, buttermilk, bacon and bread on top of the donkey carts trundling switchback tracks to the quarry. They camped in a bell-heather heath, lit blue smoke fires beside peat ricks, filled kettles and pots at the stream. Hares sprinted downhill through sedge, red grouse whirred from their nests, go back, go back, go back. 
The younger men rose with the sun, sharpened chisels in fizz troughs and split blocked granite. After tea and a smoke, the masters lifted mallets, rasps and rifflers. They knelt to the stone, tapped and listened for a change in pitch to find a place to begin. Chips flitted like meadow pippets up from Whin. No lark or linnet today, half hidden in willow, only a millstone remains. In your work, somehow you draw together the ancient and the historic and the experience and nature um, and all through really small moments. Uh, you know, how, how do you find those small moments? Yeah, well, one is, is research, reading about th- those times. And again, it's, it's interesting because, again, poetry, as I was saying, has made me more aware of nature and more attuned to nature. But it also has made history come alive for me. I, I didn't love history in school. For me, you know, battles and dates and everything, I couldn't I couldn't relate to it. But this kind of history of, you know, reimagining people's lives in a place really makes sense to me, really matters to me. I mean, I suppose the last thing to say is my grandmother was from County Down, from Kirkcobbin in County Down, from a farming family. But maybe there was a stonemason in the family somewhere back. You know, so maybe that's part of my interest in this. I like that idea that you have possibly a sensitivity towards County Down because of family history and then in turn you write something that will give any walker or reader in those mountains a sensitivity that they may not have had before even that they pick up a rock and look at it differently yeah yeah that's yeah that's a lovely thought and i suppose it's because of what i've been able to read by other people you know like prager you know people who who loved the landscape before me and who opened it up for me yeah thanks to jane clark Her poetry collections are published by Blood Axe Books, The River in 2015, and When the Tree Falls from 2019. One thing I discovered after my meeting with Jane is that Prager himself decided against applying for an engineering job in the Mourne Mountains to build the works for the Mourne Water Scheme. Instead, he took the assistant librarian job in the National Library and essentially changed his career entirely. Otherwise, no doubt, the quarrymen of Annalong would otherwise have crossed paths with him. Thanks to the Royal Irish Academy for access to their collections to research this episode. By Robert Lloyd Prager, I read The Way That I Went and A Populous Solitude. I dipped into an Irish topographical botany and the Clare Island survey, as well as the invaluable biography of Prager, The Life of a Naturalist by Sean Lysett, published by Four Courts Press. I also found Farrington's obituary of Prager in the Irish Naturalist Journal, Volume 11, 1954, a great insight. The readings were by Declan Brennan. Next time on Shelf Marks, I speak to Mancon McGann about High Brazil, medicinal plants and the Irish for the buzzing of bees. This podcast is funded by the Arts Council Literature Project Award. <laughs>